think it happened uh, after watching that cult classic, uh, Gremlins. <laughs> right? You remember Gremlins? A little fuzzy creature, Gizmo, that if he was sprinkled with water, right, would transform into the Gremlins. Right? I was convinced that there were Gremlins in my room when I turned off <laughs> the light. As I, as I grew older, I realized that my fear of the dark was not based in reality. Now, I don't mean that the fear wasn't real. Uh, believe you me, I had a real fear. I believe that there was a gremlin in my room when I turned off the light. But that, that fear was not based in reality. The truth is that if I could get myself to understand and, or better yet, see the reality of the situation, then I would have no reason to fear. There were no gremlins in my room. My fear showed, that showed up in the dark when I was growing up, um, that was my fear when I was eight or nine, fear in the dark. I must admit to you, that fear, fear still grips my heart. I can assure you I'm no longer afraid of the dark. <laughs> in fact, I love sleeping in the dark. <laughs> it's got to be all dark <laughs> when I sleep. Uh, but there are other things, circumstances and situations that arise in my life that tempt me to fear. I share that with you this morning because I don't think that I am alone in that reality. We are all tempted to fear, and just like my issues growing up of fearing the dark, those fears often fail to consider the reality. Now, again, please hear me rightly. The fears that you and I have, they are real. Fear is a very real and visceral emotion. But the question is, are those fears based in reality? Or better yet, we need to ask, is there a greater reality that trumps this present reality that if seen or understood would cancel out the fear that I am experiencing? Okay, I need to say that again. That was a lot, all right? The question that we need to ask is, are those fears based in reality, or better yet, we need to ask, is there a greater reality that trumps this present reality that, if seen or understood, would cancel out this fear that I am experiencing? I believe in every situation that we face where, we, where fear seeks to grip our heart, there is a greater reality, a greater truth present that if we would have eyes to see, would cancel out whatever fear is gripping our heart. What do I mean? Well, perhaps we've all been in those uh, 4D simulators. 
right, where you are sitting in front of a large screen and you have 3D glasses on and it feels as though you are in that experience. And it's, and it's very real. You're seeing things right in front of you. Some of those things make your, your, sheet, your seat shakes a little bit or, or they'll sprinkle you with some water to think that you're actually experiencing what is happening on the screen. But if you were to stop, step back, right? Sometimes you're fearful about what's about to come on the screen. If you would step back and take inventory of what is really going on, you'll realize that you are just in a simulator. Yes, yes, it's real. Things are really happening in front of you, but there is a greater reality that trumps that present reality. I think, I think that is what is being communicated in our text this morning. God is trying to communicate to his people and therefore to us that there is a greater reality at play in our lives and in the world if we would just have eyes to see. And what is that truth? What is that greater reality? Here it is. God fights for his people. God fights for his people. In 2 Chronicles 20, 15, uh, the Lord says to King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. Brothers and sisters, that is a truth that should not be missed and is an ever-present reality in our lives. Listen, there is an ongoing battle raging all around us. It's raging. It is, it is what Paul refers to in Ephesians 6, in Ephesians 6 and 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's, that's what is going on all around us. And in the Bible, and even in our world, that conflict, it manifests itself or spills over into our present world. Uh, we've talked about this oftentimes already during this sermon series. When we see conflict in the scriptures between the people of God and their enemies, it is pointing to the greater conflict taking place in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm. We, we see it. So it is important to know that. But it is also crucial to know and understand that that conflict, that that battle that is raging in the heavenly places, in the spiritual places, that, that battle uh, belongs to the Lord. He, that conflict, he, he fights it for us. He fights for us. And brothers and sisters, that is a comforting reality as we engage in a hostile world. It would have been a comforting truth 
to the Israelites as they face conflict from nations all around them. It is comforting because when God fights, it is never a fair fight. <laughs> it's never a fair fight. Here's what the enemy failed to realize. God's enemies and the, the, the enemies of the people of God and what we too often forget. There is no God like our God. He has every resource and more at his disposal. If he needs to stop the rain, done. If he needs to part seas or stop up rivers, it's done. If he needs to make the sun stand still, it is just a word. God's enemies and therefore his people's enemies don't stand a chance. It's not a fair fight. It's not a fair fight. When God fights for his people, when we see him fighting in the scriptures, we see on display his character and how his character overwhelms and defeats the enemy at every turn. That is what our text displays for us this morning. God's character overwhelming and subduing the enemies of God and his people. First, in our text, we see God using his omniscience to fight for his people. His omniscience. And, and by omniscience, perhaps you're wondering, well, that's a big word. What does omniscience mean? It means that God knows all things and nothing can be hidden from him. That's what it means. And so we dive into our text where it says, the, the, the writer says, so once when the Syrians and Israel were warring, this was an ongoing battle between the Syrians and the people of Israel. And so the writer tells us that every once in a while, the, the king would say to his men to go to such and such an area, uh, set up a camp so that we can ambush the Israelites and attack them without them knowing. But when they would do that, Israel would know their plan ahead of time and avoid that area and therefore avoiding the, uh, the attack of the Syrian army. According to the text, this didn't just happen once, but it happened multiple times, much to the frustration of the Syrian king. His this frustration then soon gave way to paranoia. Paranoia because he, he feared that, uh, that they had a traitor in the camp. He believed that the only way Israel could know their plans, know where they were going to be, was that they had a spy within their ranks feeding this intelligence to the Israelites. Well, determined to find the mole, he summoned his servants and ordered them to find the spy. Find him. We got to find him. But I am sure, to his surprise and dismay, his servants told him that it was not a spy at all, but it was the work 
of the prophet in Israel, the man called Elisha. He was the one who had been feeding this military intelligence to the Israelites. The servants were right, as that is the commentary we get from the writer in verses 9 and 10. 2 Kings 6, 9 and 10. But the man of God, Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Be, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. The, the servants were right. Elisha had been supernaturally given this information ahead of time to the king of Israel so that they could avoid the attack. Where did Elisha get this information from? Here was the omniscient God, right? The all-knowing God from whom which nothing can be hid using his omniscience to fight for his people in protecting them from the harm of the enemy. There are no sneak attacks with God. He knows it all. Oh, brothers and sisters, you and I might not be aware of the schemes or the plans of the evil one, but, but God knows nothing can be hidden from him. And that is a comfort if the Lord is fighting for you. You do understand that. That the Lord knowing all things is a comfort to you when, 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 God, when you know that God fights for you. It's, it's his omniscience that undergirds Psalm 121. Verse 7 and 8. We, could, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, uh, the, whole, the whole Psalm of 121, so I encourage you to read this. But the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Only the God who knows all things can do that. It's his omniscience that undergirds the comfort of Psalm 121. There is nothing hidden from him. And therefore, he is able to thwart the plans of the enemy or whatever seeks to bring his people harm. God knows all things. And this is why, and I'm preaching to myself, uh, perhaps you shouldn't get angry when you're delayed to that meeting. preaching because I love being on time. And if I'm delayed, I start getting angry. But perhaps it's the Lord being gracious, keeping me, keeping our steps. Only the God who knows can undergird Psalm 121. You see, when God promised Israel that he would be their God and they would be his people, that promise meant he would fight for them against their enemies. Which means the enemies of Israel 
were ultimately the enemies of God. When nations went to war against Israel, they went to war against God. And brothers and sisters, that never works out well for the enemy. As, as Gamaliel said in Acts 5, 38 and 39, when the disciples were, were in Jerusalem and they were making a big fuss and a big, a big stink and, and they wanted to put them to death, uh, Gamaliel said, so in, the presence, in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is, is of man, it will fail. And he was right. If it is done in, the, uh, in man's strength, it will fail. But Gamaliel says, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. <laughs> the enemies of God's people are the enemies of God. And that is what is going on here with the Syrian king. He did not understand that he was opposing and doing battle, not against Israel, but he was opposing and doing battle against God. And after hearing, after hearing the prophet's involvement, the Syrian, from the Syrian king found out that it was Elisha feeding the military intelligence. You would think he would say, oh, it's, it's the prophet. Okay, I'm done. I'm, okay, you all win. No more war. We're not going to sneak attack anymore. He would come to his senses and, and kind of cut his losses. No, that's not what he does. He instructs his men to find Elisha and take him as a prisoner. Now, this is the folly of the enemy, brothers and sisters. Those who oppose God think that they can win. They assume that they can take out God's people, and God is just going to stand by and let it happen. God's resources, God's resources are unlimited. His character fights for his people. And so while before, earlier on in, the, in this conflict, he uses his omniscience, this time God is going to use his omnipresence and his omnipotence to overwhelm the enemy. First, we see his omnipresence, meaning that God is ever-present. He is ever-present. So this army, right, the, the Syrian king sends the army down to Dothan because that's where he hears Elijah is stationed. So he sends the army to Dothan to seize Elisha. And we are told that Elisha's servant walks out the house early in the morning and he is immediately gripped with fear. He's gripped with fear because as he looks around the city, he sees an army perhaps that he can't even number, with, not with chariots, of, with horses, and they are beyond number. And he runs back into the house, and he cries out in fear 
to Elisha, Elisha, what are we going to do? Now, we can look at this situation and we can say that Elisha's servant had every reason to fear. It was just he and Elisha. How were they going to fend off this large Syrian army? They had chariots and horses, and they were surrounded with no way of escape. This is a dire situation. Elisha's servant is frightened. He is trembling. But Elisha is just as cool as can be. Just as cool as can be. And notice what Elisha says to his servant. In response to the servant saying to Elisha, what are we going to do? Elisha says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is a declaration that is used by God. It is used by his prophets and Jesus all throughout the scriptures. It is a command given at times when it seems like fear would be the appropriate response. You remember when the disciples were on the boat and the storm is raging around them? What does Jesus come to them and say? Do not fear. When Jairus' daughter is told that his Jairus was told that his daughter was going to die, and he comes up to Jesus, and Jesus says, do not fear. When those shepherds were there on the hillside the night that Jesus was born, and a heavenly host of angels came and frightened them, what did the angels declare to them? Do not be afraid. It's common. We can go on and on looking at the various times in Scriptures that is told to God's people, do not be afraid. And so, I think this is, this is a good practice for us. We can do this. I think we can rightly tell people when they are encountering what is a fear-inducing situation, that is something that we can encourage them with. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Unfortunately, this response can seem like it is trite or insensitive. <laughs> like, like telling people to trust God when they are going through a difficult situation. People have, have said, well, uh, oh, is that all you got to say? <laughs> right? But you need to know that when Elisha told his servant not to be afraid, it wasn't because what they were facing was not something they shouldn't be afraid of. They, they, they were no doubt in a dicey situation. Most people in this situation would have been scared out of their minds. But Elisha is, not, is saying not to be afraid because there is a greater reality of this situation. And he says to his servant, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha 
was looking at the situation with eyes of faith. With eyes of faith, he was looking beyond his current reality to a greater reality. He knew his God was an omnipresent God. And that is the difference makers maker, brothers and sisters. There is always a greater reality present. The question is, are you looking at your situation with the eyes of faith? Eyes of faith are able to see past the circumstance, past the fear, past the doubt, past the pain, past the suffering to the greater truth, the greater reality, the greater joy, the greater peace. This is what Paul encourages us to do in 2 Corinthians 4 and 18. Oh, we don't look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Yes, they are real. The things that are, we see are real, but there is a greater reality to the unseen things. This is the example we have in Jesus. In Hebrews 2, he says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Saw to the greater reality. This was Jesus. This was Elisha. Elisha was a man of faith who saw the greater reality of their situation and he sought to ease the fear of his servant by pointing him to that truth. So he says to his servant, do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who were with them. This is the omnipresent God who fights for his people. He is always present. Always, always, always present with his people. Always with us. You and I are never alone. You, you, you do understand that you never, you never, never, never go at it alone. If you are in Christ, or better yet, Christ is in you, then you are never too few. <laughs> never too few. That's what John says in 1 John 4, 4. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Elisha says to a servant, it's going to be Okay. It's going to be okay. We are on God's side. And there is always more on God's side. Now, sometimes I wish I could see the faces of the people in the Bible when something Jesus or a prophet says doesn't compute. <laughs> right? This didn't make sense. What do you mean we, can't, we shouldn't be afraid? We, 
you mean there's more with us than with them? Elisha, can't you count? It's just, it's just the two of us. Do you not see all of these chariots and all these horses? What do you mean we have more on our side? Oh, we should not look disparagingly at Elisha's servant. If we are honest, we do the same thing. Our eyes get fixated on what is in front of us, and we don't exercise the faith to see beyond what is there. Now, I want you to notice and pay close attention to what Elisha does and doesn't do. Notice, he doesn't try to convince his servant that there are more with them. He doesn't try to convince him. He doesn't tell him, hey, 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 look harder. If, if you look from this angle, you will see them, right? He's, he's not trying to convince him to, to, to take it into his own hands and, and look harder. Nor does he get frustrated with his servant because he can't see. No, what Elisha does is he pleads with the only one who can grant the faith to see what cannot be seen. That's what he does. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is so instructive for us because too often we want people to see the reality of their situation so bad we think that we can convince them with sound and reasonable arguments. We think it is simply a matter of their will or a lack of knowledge. No, brothers and sisters, it is about ability. These things are spiritually discerned. They don't have, they lack the ability to see them. Elisha knew his servant did not have the ability to see because he, he lacked the eyes of, of faith. And so what does Elisha do? He goes to the one who has the ability to grant eyes of faith to see what cannot be seen. He prays to the Lord in 2 Kings 6:17, "Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he might see." Elisha did what Jesus did. He prayed to the Father to grant sight to the blind. Lord, Lord, help, help this man to see the greater reality. Help him to see that you are with us and that you fight for us. Oh, brothers and sisters, sometimes what causes our frustration with people is that we want them to do something they are incapable of doing, or, or even more, something we think we can make them do. But there is only one who gives sight to the blind, only one who can make the lame walk, only one that can make the deaf hear. And that is why we pray. We pray for others. We pray for ourselves. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see what we cannot see. Grant us the ability to see the greater reality in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Uh, 
It's what Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 and 8. His prayer was that, Lord, would you enlighten, uh, that, that the Lord would enlighten their hearts, that they might know what is the hope to which he has called them and what are the riches of, the, of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that, that the Lord would open up the eyes of their heart. God granted, God granted that prayer that Elijah prayed for his servant. He granted it to Elisha. So the Lord opened up the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The, the, the Lord opened his servant's eyes to the reality of what he could not see before, and he saw that the omnipresent God, and therefore what, that the omnipresent God was indeed with them, and therefore, the enemies who surrounded them stood no chance. The enemies that surrounded them were surrounded. <laughs> God was with them. God's omnipresence was on display. But he also, he also was going to utilize his omnipotence to fight for his people. Now, by God's omnipotence, what we mean is that God has all power. He has the ability to do whatever he wants. What is impossible with man is possible with God. It is the truth that there is nothing too hard for God. He controls nature and he controls the wills and the actions of men and women. And so when the Syrian army began to come down against to seize Elisha and his servant. Elisha prayed to the Lord, whom he knows has all power, to exercise his power on his behalf. 2 Kings 6 and 18. Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike the, this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. The God who was able, who is able to open up blind eyes is the same God who can shut them. <laughs> he is all-powerful, and that power was used to fight for his people. God's power is always, God's power is always used for that purpose. It is to bring him glory and for the good of his people. And so when you pray in accordance with that will, God answers like he did Elisha. We're told that Elisha used God's answered prayer to lead the Syrian army right into the midst of Samaria, which you do know was the heart of the Israelite camp. He led their enemies right into their hands. After leading the blind Syrian army into the camp of the Israelites, Elisha prays again, open the eyes of these men. And when they opened up their eyes, they were fearful, for they see all around them the Israelite army. They're doomed. 
where they once thought they had the upper hand, now, now their lives are in danger. Fear, no doubt. Fear, no doubt, gripped their heart. And the Israelite king saw this as perhaps an answer to prayer. <laughs> he says and asks Elisha, hey, 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 Elisha, should I strike them down? He actually says it twice. Should I, should I do it? And Elisha answers in 2 Kings 6, 22 through 23. You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you would have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they might eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. You know, we've seen God show forth his character, what, in his omni, uh, omni, uh, omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. Now he's going to show forth his character in his benevolence. In his benevolence, he is going to overwhelm the enemy with his benevolence. In other words, what Elisha tells the Israelite king, oh, you can't kill him with the sword, but you could kill him with kindness. <laughs> you could kill him with kindness. That's what he does. That's what they do. Show your enemies grace. Show them love. Demonstrate the mercy of, of, of the God you say you serve. Oh, this is extraordinary, extraordinary mercy and grace being displayed here. Rather than taking them as prisoners or, or even worse, putting them to the sword, they are met not with just a, you know, a little wafer and a, little, a cup of juice, right? A, a large feast. This is a great feast that they have. They were eating to their fill. Oh. Perhaps you're wondering how this demonstrates God fighting for his people. <laughs> you only ask such a question when you forget about the benevolent character of God. God, brothers and sisters, can and will use benevolence, right, his kindness to subdue his enemies. Don't we read in Romans 2 and 4 that the kindness of God leads to repentance? God's benevolence, God's kindness, his mercy, his grace, you do understand is able to subdue the most hardened and rebellious heart. Uh, we, might, we might do good, I think, to remember that. In fact, we are told in Romans 12 and 20, if your enemy is hungry, what ought you to do? Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his 
head. Brothers and sisters, this is contrary. It was contrary to the customs of that time. That is contrary to our customs. It's countercultural. Oh, this act of kindness, it subdued the Syrian army. And for a time, they ceased their attacks on Israel. That's, that's what it says. So, and the Syrians did not come again on, rain, on raids into the land of Israel. Oh, God's grace and mercy to them led to a change in their behavior. God subdued and overwhelmed the enemies of Israel with his amazing and glorious character. Oh, brothers and sisters, God fights for his people. And if he is for us, then who? Then who can be against us? In fact, not even the sin that seeks to entrap and surround us stands a chance. It doesn't. Stands no chance. For in Christ, the full character of God fought for us and subdued our greatest enemy, namely sin and death. And even, even when it tries to rise and, and rail its ugly head against us, threatening us and accusing us, it doesn't stand a chance. For God fought for us and is still fighting for us. Oh, and that, you see, is the greater reality. Whatever you and I are facing, I pray, I pray that it would be our prayer that God would open up our eyes to the greater reality, that God is with us and that he is for us. The battle, it does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. Let's pray.